Hi, I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer, and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. Today, we are so excited to be joined by Maggie Moore. She's the HR lead um, at FMP Consulting. And Maggie and I known each other for many, many years. Uh, my first job out of grad school was at FMP, and we were consulting together on a number of projects. Um, and then Maggie's transitioned over into HR, and she's had a really interesting career trajectory. So we'd love to hear more about that. Um, but I'm so excited to have you, Maggie. It's been so fun to reconnect and talk over the years now that we aren't working together. Um, but you know, FMP was such a great experience for me, and I've kept in touch with so many people because it's such a great place to work. So yeah, thanks for joining us. Of course. And thank you for having me. I'm super excited to reconnect and talk about this topic area, um, which I've become more and more passionate about as the years have gone by and I've gone through my career transition. And I definitely feel like this is an area that we need to talk about um, as a culture in an organization among our leadership and employees to really move us forward um, into the next century. So I'm super excited to be here um, and talk more. Awesome. Yeah. Along those lines, uh, do you think you might be able to give us a little bit more of like uh, some details on your background, just so that our listeners know kind of a little bit more about your history and uh, your family and kind of what led you to uh, be passionate about uh, the topic that you're going to be discussing with us today. Absolutely. So interestingly enough, um, I started my career as many um, aspiring psychologists do, um, actually in social work, coming straight out of school, I studied psychology and business, um, and not to go too much into that, but I really have always loved working with people and helping people, which led me to a career that started in human resources and really from a point of being really strategic about um, how we manage organizations to help them be really productive and employees for being, being really happy, I decided to delve into more of that strategy side um, and go get my master's in industrial organizational psychology, which you guys um, share as a background. Um, and that really led me in many ways to where I am today. I had a, I was at FMP straight out of grad school, like Patricia, uh, worked as a long time as a consultant in many areas um, within industrial organizational psychology um, and really, you know, started at the time thinking about where I wanted to go in my career. Did I want to continue to be a consultant? Did I want to go internal? And as I was doing that, I learned a lot about myself and what I value and a lot about wellness really. And how do I, you know, I don't think it's work-life balance. I think it's maintaining the effectiveness in both parts of your life and deciding what's really a priority for you. And ultimately I had made a transition after a few years of being a consultant because I wanted to focus more on my wellness so that I could prepare myself to have a family. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but really knew that I needed to take that step back. So I left FMP for a brief period and continued to work with them, but as an independent consultant while actually jumping into becoming certified as a health coach, which was a little bit more on the holistic end where, you know, we do talk about nutrition and fitness and some of those things, but really also talking about career and relationships and lifestyle, all of that um, from that holistic perspective and how all of that contributes to your life and your productivity at work and whatnot. Um, and so I did that and really learned that I actually love what I do, but I just needed to kind of do it in a little bit of a different capacity and role and take a little bit of a step back and ratchet my hours down um, and focus on making sure that I was really being as competent and productive as I wanted to be, while at the same time being able to prioritize all those other things in my life. So that led me to come back to FMP in 2017 more recently um, as an internal role. I, it's kind of meta. I really do, you know, <laughs> internal human capital for a human capital consulting firm, mm -hmm. um, which really kind of ups that standard. But in between all of that, um, I was pregnant with my first child, Avery, 
in uh, 2014, and she's now, gosh, she's a little over four, which is crazy. Um, and you know, wanted, I know, I can't believe it. I really can't believe it. She's like a little girl now. It's kind of crazy um, <laughs> to me that I have a four-year-old. Um, and in many ways, it's flown by, and in many ways, it's been the longest the longest years, the longest days, and maybe some of the short <laughs> years of my life, as they say, it's true. Um, <laughs> you know, on that journey, I, I really was, I felt like I was really in a good place after I had her and able to do this independent consulting and work on the kind of projects I wanted, um, you know, mostly with FMP. And then I had my second child, CJ, um, May 2017. So he just turned two, which is he's a full-blown toddler, which is also shocking to me. Um, and after I took, you know, I, I, I was on my own, so I took whatever leave I could and kind of bankrolled my own time by working more before. So I took about five or six months off with both of them, which is way above the U.S. average, um, but decided to come back to FMP. Um, in that internal role when I came back to work with CJ. Um, and I quite honestly never would have rejoined any other organization, but FMP has always been extremely accommodating and flexible. And when they approached me about coming back internally, I said, you know, that sounds wonderful. I've really wanted that in my career, but I really don't want to work full time right now. You know, it's not my priority. My career is not my priority right now. I love what I do, but that's not where I'm focused. And they said, well, hey, we've had Wendy supporting us on recruitment and onboarding for a while. And they'd had nobody in a role in that role for a while um, since mm -hmm. two people had left the organization. So they said, you know, hey, why don't we create a job share? You guys talk about it and see what you think. And subsequently, I am in a job share where Wendy works 20 hours. I work 20 hours. So we're kind of like one person or she focuses on <laughs> recruitment and onboarding. I focus on training and development, benefits, employer relations and engagement, as I prefer to call it. And then we share all the other not so fun stuff like the compliance and the reporting and all of that jazz. Um, and it's been really wonderful. Um, she's got kids that are older. You know, I've got the little kids. So and she's got a very different perspective. Um, so it's, I feel like we make a great team and, and it's such a great experience. And I, you know, being able to have that has allowed me to return to work and really go where I want to go with my career and get that experience. So I'll stop there because that, that's a lot of information, but basically <laughs> to say I've had, you know, kind of, you know, maybe a common, common trajectory with my career, but ratchet back a little bit while I have these little kids with the knowledge that I can make a deeper dive, you know, when my kids get older, hopefully we'll see. Yeah. I'm not surprised that FMP would be that amazing and flexible because they were when I was there too. And I really enjoyed that about working there is just having the support and the flexibility and people around you that really want to make things work. So kind of as a FYI for all of our listeners, when I worked at FMP, um, towards, I guess, two years in, I was dying to get back to California. So FMP is in DC and I really wanted to move back home near my family. And FMP supported me in that and let me do that and work as a contractor um, for another year until I found a full-time position here in California. And there, it was not like dramatic at all for me to do that or no one got upset. Everyone knew that I was probably gonna be looking for another job and yet they still support you because they're just such great people that really care about their people. And, you know, if you're doing good work, like, okay, maybe you'll leave in a year, but at least in that year they get to benefit from your work too. So it's kind of a, a nice balance between being um, a good employer and also getting the best out of the employees that they have. And obviously with you, Maggie, they see so much potential and you're a really hard worker, a really great employee. So why wouldn't they try to make something work where you can have your priorities and have your life in, in order and they can also benefit from your intelligence and your hard work um, as well? Well, thank you. That's so sweet of you. And I honestly, you know, I've worked for FMP for more than 10 years at this point in some capacity. And they have been, like you said, incredibly flexible. I mean, I moved to Florida for what I thought was going to be a year, but became three years um, for at the time, 
my boyfriend, who is now my husband's job. Um, and I thought I would have to leave. And they said, well, hey, just stay. We'll work it out. And yeah, I had a lot of colleagues, maybe you, bring me around to clients on the laptop video <laughs> and other creative <laughs> ways. And then, you know, I came back and I wasn't really, you know, it's kind of at a ceiling in my that point in my career there where I didn't want to really be doing more of the business development from consulting and didn't realize that I love the technical work as much. Um, so we kind of tried to shift things around in my job for about a year. And then at that point, it was sort of made sense. You know, I said, hey, I you know really want to do this health coaching thing. And at the time, my mom was, you know, incredibly sick and eventually entered hospice right around that point. And it just made sense for me to be an independent contractor. And they've always supported me and encouraged me. Um, and so having the opportunity to come back, I honestly don't think I would do it anywhere else. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting um, because, you know, there are so many different pieces of the puzzle to juggle when you're trying to figure out work and you're trying to figure out, you know, these new family responsibilities that you have. Um, and, you know, you have competing priorities, but you don't want to neglect entirely one or the other. Um, and so, you know, it's really useful and, you know, some, some good research out there on, um, what happens when women are going through pregnancy in the workplace shows that, you know, people think really hard during that time period about what's it going to be like, how am I going to balance these things? What am I going to prioritize? And so, uh, taking some of that, um, or alleviating some of the stress associated with the stigma of having children or this idea that like, you know, well, if I, if I go out there and tell them that I'm going to have a baby, I'm not going to be able to return or they're not going to view me the same way, or they won't make, they won't make arrangements to make things work for me, um, is common. And so I think, you know, taking that part of the stress off of the plate is certainly a good thing. Um, I think though, uh, you know, when you were talking about these sort of accommodations that were able to be made, which obviously was a win for them because they get to retain and, and actually attract back yeah. a talented employee. Um, but it sounds like things worked out very well structurally from, uh, you know, a job, um, from the perspective of the tasks on the job and being able to come back to the job and flex things around. But I know, uh, one of the things that you want to talk about today is sort of what didn't work out as expected or some things that were unexpected or not planable, sort of more of the emotional, um, psychological side of things, uh, stemming from, uh, pregnancy, having children. So would you be able to talk a little bit about some of the things that you were not able to anticipate? Absolutely. And it was funny because when we were talking about this before, I definitely, you know, have a little bit of a history of, um, that would predispose me to having some of those more postpartum, uh, challenges kind of in the mental health arena. And I, I knew that and anticipated that. And it's funny because I didn't really get that with my first child. Um, it was really the second child, um, that surprised me in terms of those, you know, I think becoming a parent, gosh, such a steep learning curve. I think to myself all the time, how did my parents do it? You know, how, how did they do it? And you can read about it and talk to people and prepare yourself um, as much as you can until you do it. I mean, I think people know that, but it's, you know, it's hard to really understand that experience until you've walked in those shoes. And so for me, you know, I had kind of a great, you know, my mom had passed away right before my daughter was born. And I had this kind of life out of after death experience that was almost euphoric with um, Avery. It's kind of amazing. And because I was in much more control in my career, it, it seemed to be, you know, great. Um, so I kind of got blindsided, quite honestly, um, after I had my second child. And I really didn't see it coming. And I had um, what, what I can only uh, understand now that I'm out of it as, as having, you know, not postpartum depression or anxiety in the classic sense, but having this thing that people don't talk about and is frankly embarrassing, but, you know, very realistic for a lot of people of this thing called postpartum rage that really negatively impacted my life in terms of, you know, while, even while like right after he was born, um, while I was on leave and then, you know, wanting to come back to FMP, but you know, really struggling, struggling with, you know, regulating myself, struggling with 
not sleeping, which just made it worse and struggling with kind of, you know, who I was as a productive employee and could I be that same person, um, you know, when you're getting two hours of sleep and you're in this space where you don't know what's going on and, you know, the society chucks it up to, hey, baby blues or, hey, you're not sleeping. You know, people use sleep as a torture, <laughs> a torture device. Um, and that just makes kind of that mental health piece so much worse and difficult to sort out. And I didn't, you know, frankly have an idea of how bad it was, um, you know, and I, I came back to work and I loved it, but there was a really steep learning curve for me in terms of doing a different job and in terms of coming back and having a completely different experience with my child and losing my, you know, detail orientation that was so essential to making me a good employee and being productive. So I really, really, really struggled um, the second time around in a way that I just couldn't anticipate. Could you talk to us a little bit about um, this idea of postpartum rage? Because I haven't heard that term before. And I'm wondering, based on, you know, it sounds like you've done a lot of research on this topic since to try to pinpoint, you know, what it was that you were experiencing or to try to better understand um, and make sense of it. But um, how does that differ from some of the other kind of uh, symptoms that people go through or um, are there different types of postpartum experiences? Mm -hmm. So just curious to hear a little bit more about that. Absolutely. I mean, I think most commonly it's termed PPD or PPA. So the most common experience is that, you know, one out of seven, which is shocking, new mom's um, experience is the depression, which some people just chalk up to like baby blues that, you know, you're transitioning and you're sad about losing the life you previously had and your freedom. Um, and, you know, hormones are a real thing. So they dip when you actually have the baby. And so, you know, I think there's complex interactions there, but that experience is very much being overwhelmed, you know, low energy, kind of unable to complete daily tasks, you know, being just, oh my gosh, I have all these dishes and you know, I'm spending 10 hours a day feeding my baby and how am I going to get through this? You know, I'm really not the person I used to be. Um, and then on kind of the anxiety end, which I think can be coupled with depression, just like anybody who had regular anxiety and depression that goes together. Gosh, that is horrible. It's like, you know, worry all the time. Worry about that your child's going to die in their crib from sudden infant death syndrome. Um you know, you look away for a second or you fall asleep and your child dies um, or someone's going to steal your child. This very irrational thinking, you know, or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm my child isn't getting enough milk from breastfeeding and I'm going to have to give them formula and I'm a terrible mom. And, you know, the, it could go, I mean, I could go on and on, but it's really the predominant feeling is being anxious all the time, which is exhausting um, and makes it very difficult for you to have a good experience and to have that transition because you really feel like you just can't handle it. You're so anxious and all the time and you can't enjoy, you know, who, how, you know, horrible do you feel when you have this beautiful child, you know, and you're lucky and you know that people, everyone can't have that, you know, and you're so lucky. Um, and yet you feel like it's a horrible experience and you want to get out of it. Um, so I think that's, really the more um, well-known symptoms. They don't even have a term for postpartum rage. Postpartum rage is more associated with um, bipolar disorder, which is more manic and hypomanic. So you guys may have heard of that. Um, again, lesser understood in the medical community, but some of the symptoms of that are going from anxious and depressed to manic and part of the manic is the rage and the rage is you're just you're not patient you're out of control everything triggers you i mean you are so angry you're angry at your child for not sleeping you're angry at your husband for not unloading the dishwasher you know you have no patience it it's to look at it from a you know psychological sense your window of tolerance is extremely small so what you're able to manage is almost nothing and kind of anybody does anything or you drop a pan and break an egg, it's just such a big deal. And you get so upset. 
And some of it is very dark and scary. It's, you know, you're so mad that, you know, this is why, honestly, people shake their child. This is why, you know, people get divorced. Um, it's really hard to live with a person like that. It's really hard to live with yourself. It's, it's incredibly upsetting. And I like to think that I was a very patient person before. Not chill. <laughs> Definitely not chill. I'm very type A. Um, but it almost makes it worse because you're just so out and you're totally out of control. I mean, you, you can't stop yourself because it just comes out and the yelling and screaming. And I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really horrible and um, not understood. And so, you know, people think, well, you're not depressed. You're not anxious. You're just being a horrible person. <laughs> and this is not me. I and mean, it just really came out of nowhere, knocked me over. And I've never in my life experienced something like that. So given that it's not a common um, diagnosis or really, like Atina mentioned, not something I've ever heard of either. How did you come to this term of postpartum rage or how did you get the help that you needed and, you know, kind of get to where you needed to go to get through this? I mean, it, it was really hard. I think for the first 11 months, I didn't even know. I didn't know the term at all. Um, you know, even I remember going to my OBGYN, I think it was my six uh, week check-in. They do a check-in and they do a screening for postpartum depression. <laughs> and the questions are just really minimal. Um, and, you know, they're being an OB, they don't really understand that. And I remember saying to him, hey, you know, I don't feel right. I really don't. I don't know what's going on. And he really brushed it off. And it made me feel like, okay, there's just something wrong with me, you know, and I started talking to some of my you know, new mom friends who I knew had some postpartum challenges. And they actually were the ones that directed me to a site called Postpartum Progress um, that does a lot of research and, you know, promotes education to, you know, everybody, to individuals, to employers, um, to family members on what this actually means and how, postpartum disorders are manifested. And that's the first time I read about it. And I was, my reaction was, oh, okay, this sounds like me. And it's validating. And it talks about, you know, what you do to get help. And, you know, a lot of that is medication because your brain chemicals are not working properly. And I resisted. I resisted going to a psychiatrist because I did not want to go back on medication. I, you know, it does, it isn't necessarily that harmful for your child, but if you're nursing, it can be a risk. Um, you know, and it was, I have a La Leche lactation support group um, in my neighborhood, luckily enough, that it helped me with Avery because she was in the NICU. So I had a real uphill battle with her. And, and, you know, kind of opened up that conversation. People were on the Facebook page talking about this challenge. And I asked, I said, Hey, I'm having this thing. What do I, you know, what do you, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And people responded so compassionately to say, Hey, you know, this is normal. Get help, do what you can do. Contact the infant risk center, talk to them about medications. And, you know, I do have a therapist and she really, it was after for me, I mean, quite sadly, one night where I I don't even want to go into detail, but where I just really went over the edge for me and was totally hysterical about what I'd done to, you know, my family um, and kind of drove off in the middle of the night in my bathrobe and realized, hey, you know, I am went over the edge and I need to do something and told my therapist about it, called her so upset. And she said, you need to go right now. And she actually sent me to a, like a acute um, psychiatric center at a hospital nearby and you know because I couldn't get in my therapist or my psychiatrist had retired right before mm -hmm. CJ was born and I it takes like four or five months to get into somebody new which is ludicrous in in this world um, so I couldn't get in I wasn't I didn't have a you know psychiatrist and I was just wow I did not anticipate so I finally was able to get in but it you know it's it's been a journey you know I, it took me about a year to get back to a place where I didn't have the rage, um, you know? So, you know, what, to answer your question, what led me was this progression into a very severe, um, very, very severe episode 
that happened with my family where I realized, wow, I'm hurting them and I'm about to hurt myself and I've got to do something. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to share these stories and we're so grateful that you're willing to do that because, um, you know, there's not as many people as there should be talking about these kinds of things. And so the less people talk about it, the less people want to talk about it because they feel like it's not normal. And it's great that you got the support that you needed from uh, these groups of people, but you had to kind of still seek that out or it's not common knowledge or for a while you felt like something was wrong with you. And I know uh, when uh, Patricia and I went to uh, create and cultivate conference a couple of years back, um, they had various keynote speakers and I know Chrissy Teigen was talking about, Uh, her experiences with postpartum. And I think the more you hear from people talking about it in public forums, the more, you know, normalized it becomes and the more people are willing to recognize that they have an issue and go get help. But, you know, certainly still there, there may be some risks involved in speaking about it. Could you tell us a little bit more about what made you want to speak up about this issue? And if there are some challenges that you face since you started being more public about the struggles that you had? Absolutely. In fact, I, I had a really positive response to sharing this. I initially, it was quite honestly, I, I had felt like I wanted to share it as I was coming out of it. I had a great friend um, who kept encouraging me. She kept saying, Maggie, you don't have to live like this. You need to get out of it. I know you're resistant, but you've got to do something. Um, and she kept saying that and she's, she got out of it. And I thought, okay, it's possible. And then um, with the suicides of, you know, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade that one week, I was just, even though, you know, it wasn't postpartum related, it was, it was this thing where, you know, you can be in this space and how quickly can someone have a mood swing that they then decide in that moment they're going to kill themselves. I mean, that is so scary. Um, and it happens, you know, the, with women, um, new moms, it is the second leading cause of mortality, which is, it's really scary. Um, and, you know, I had been struggling to find the words, um, to talk about it for about three months. You know, I wanted to post something publicly, but I just couldn't do it because I felt like, I don't know if I want to put myself out there. I really don't. And when I realized that, you know, after I resisted getting help and then I finally did, and then I didn't have to live like this. I wanted to tell other people and I wanted to tell other people you can prevent suicide. I mean, on the extreme end, you can prevent living in this constant state of terror, but also suicide. I mean, that's a really serious consequence. And I just felt so compelled to share. And it's amazing. Uh, there was no backlash. There was no stigma. I mean, I got messages from people I hadn't talked to in years on Facebook saying, thank you. You know, I had this experience, even though it may have been different than mine, you know, and, and, you know, this is optimistic. I, you know, I feel like there's not a stigma. I feel like I can get help. I mean, I had or, you know, people that I knew that were extremely successful lawyers on the outside, men, men, I mean, men, you know, rarely never share this, or you don't think that men have this experience. Um, And they're speaking up and saying, thank you for opening that door and squashing that stigma. And I feel that and I've gone through it. And I want everybody to know that you can get out of it, but you have got to do it. I mean, even, you know, I have so many financial and other resources to go see a psychiatrist and pay them to go see a therapist and think about how many people don't have that, you know, in the not, you know, in a different socioeconomic place. I mean, this is, you, you have to put yourself out there and make it known so that people, everybody is educated and everybody, you know, knows someone in a family or a friend or in a different position can share that information and work hard to support those people. Because quite honestly, when you're in that state, you're the last person that's going to support yourself. So I just felt so compelled by the suicide, which is, I don't know how that, you know, it just, it really, it happened almost instantaneously where I thought, wow, this is really bad. I need to talk about it. And I think we all appreciate you talking about it. I mean, I was one of those people that read um, an interview that you did with another blog about your experience. And I hadn't known, you know, that you had gone through any of this until I saw that. 
Um, and it really, I mean, I thought it was so important, so impactful, and obviously led to this conversation today because I thought, you know, our listeners that maybe have experienced this or know people that have experienced this could really learn from your experience or feel supported by the fact that, you know, there's someone out there talking about this and talking about the, the rage side, which is, as you said, not as common and not as talked about or not as no, well known. Um, and I think it's huge. And, you know, obviously, given where we are with worker being and um, the employment side, like you were in the midst of all this when you were starting back at work because you had just finished your yeah, leave, right? Crazy. So how did that go? And I mean, I know FMP is so supportive, but how were you getting through all of that? And, and how did that um, your experience look for everybody listening? It was a serious struggle and an internal one, I think, because FMP is such a high-performing workforce. I was in a constant state of stress and overwhelm for about the first six months, which I think is normal for an onboarding period anyway. I mean, imagine if we treated transition of new parents like we do onboarding of new employees. I mean, I was just, they were really supportive in, in terms of letting me slowly increase my hours. I didn't really know I was in that state. I kind of thought that it was stressful for me at work and that I didn't know what I was doing in terms of benefits, but it, it made it worse for me on the mental health end. And so, that, you know, I think if I was somewhere else, I would have lost it and left my job. But, you know, I had some incredibly supportive people there. And I think that's why I was able to kind of make it out of that period um, and get help. You know, I, FMP was instrumental in me getting help. Once I recognized it, you know, I didn't tell them everything, but I generally said, I really need to you know, go to a therapist, you know, every week I need to work from home. I need to go to a psychiatrist. And they said, do whatever you're going to do. And so my experience was really kind of trying to distinguish my reintegration to the workforce and overwhelm from an actual like chemical medical disease. And then really saying, I have to treat this like my life depends on this. I have to treat this, you know, my career depends on this. You know, I can't be successful in my career if I am this way. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it was a positive experience on the other end of getting help and a very, um, you know, scary experience of feeling like I really would never be able to do this job. So, I guess, I don't know, it's kind of a weird thing to say. It's sort of positive and negative, um, but ultimately was able to get to a good place. And I feel like once I got to a year in the job, the first six months were not great. And I got feedback about that and I knew it. Um, but then after that next six months and when I got help, you could really see the difference. And that made me feel, you know, validated and like I really needed to continue to push myself um, to pay attention to this you know, medical mm -hmm. issue. So when you're talking about your experiences with FMP, you know, it sounds like, um, you know, most of the things that they could have done to support you, they did right. What do you think other employers could do to uh, learn from this case, right? So how could uh, employers handle, uh, you know, maternity leave or parental leave or postpartum better? Um, what should people take away if there are leaders and organizations listening uh, to this that they could do better? And then have you implemented any changes at FMP as someone who's working in HR that helps to create that even further, even though it sounds like there was, you know, it, there was nothing broken in that system. Is there anything that you have done or steps that you've taken to improve it even further? Absolutely. So I'll back up and give you a quick preface um, to understand what I can tell employers in terms of what they can do, just so I think they understand sort of the why. I mean, I think you guys have always demonstrated, the research demonstrates that for employers, it really is about the bottom line. Like this is, they've got to do this uh, for their business, because we live in a knowledge economy and, you know, your employees are the success of your business, the productivity, the morale, all of that. So you really do need, there's a significant business case in investing in helping parents transition back to work. Um, you know, I think the important point, one thing I wanted to stress was, are the U.S. society in our country does a huge disservice to new parents. I mean, I think, I don't know if everybody knows this, 
Um, but the U.S. is the only developed country without a national paid parental leave policy, um, which in my mind, I mean, that really leaves employers to pick up the slack, which isn't realistic for many and seems kind of overwhelming. It's like, well, what do you do? I mean, you know, not everyone's Facebook. We can't all provide four months of paid leave. I mean, that's crazy. It's such an expense, especially for a small business, you know, even for a business that knows that they want to do that. You know, can they? How could they justify that? Um, you know, and I think that's the other thing, you know, I think you've seen in modern society, too, is this progression of more women in the workforce. And, you know, we're not living in the Mad Men era. We've all seen that show. <laughs> this is, you know, dual earner households. This is people that, for the most part, you know, don't even, you know, government says you have to give three months of unpaid leave. I mean, more than a lot of the workforce isn't even eligible for that. I mean, when I worked at another company, you know, they said, well, you live in Charleston, South Carolina, and you don't qualify for the Federal Medical Leave Act of three months. So you only have your two weeks of PTO and you have to come back to work and get fired. Oh, my God. Real life situation. Um, and so just to not belabor that. Wow. Yeah, this crazy. That is intense and certainly uh, supports the idea that, you know, companies need to think harder about the ways in which they're culturally supporting um, their employees and also to for all of us to think about advocacy and pushing for, you know, national federal policies that uh, would help to take some of that burden off of employers. Um, so as these sorts of issues get tossed around uh, politically and thinking about, you know, where you want to, um, you know, cast your votes or uh, what what way you want to think about, uh, you know, spending your time um, supporting uh, different policies, practices, advocacy work. Um, that, that certainly is another avenue to uh, make some progress uh, outside of just individual organizations trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And it's, you know, I know there's hashtag lead on leave and all of those, you know, similar to, you know, gotten safety is I would say the level of awareness has become higher over the years. Um, but I mean, I think it's really hard to pick up the slack. And I think the other, you know, you have all these studies that show that, um, you know, providing that paid leave, you know, even from, you know, a really serious standpoint can lower infant mortality, <laughs> you know, and that, you know, people are coming back way before they're ready. I mean, it takes an average of six to eight weeks just to recover physically from having birth. And there's studies that show that it takes a year to even get to a state where your hormones and other things are normal, you know, where you're not sleeping two to three hours a night. I mean, can you imagine, I, I can't now, but doing your job well on that kind of sleep? I mean, that's just nuts, you know, and it forces you to choose between caring for this helpless infant and forcing yourself to go back to work. I mean, that is a huge, you know, not having, I just to, you know, make it real. I mean, my husband went back to work after like a week or two and I had to take an Uber to my, you know, two week follow-up or even six week follow-up appointment because I couldn't drive. I mean, that's just nuts, you know, and I was on my yeah. own. Um, really. I mean, I had supportive family, but I, the other thing I was really thinking about um, after, you know, I knew I was going to do this podcast was, that it does take a village and it, it does really take a village. That's an expression, but it is a reality that I've experienced um, where, you know, in, back in the day, families used to live together. You know, you had grandparents around to, you know, help. And, you know, in other countries like Ghana, like women are made to rest. They literally for at least six months are solely responsible for feeding that child. Um, they're given meals by other people. Um, they're, people hold their kids so they can get some sleep. I mean, it's just this big village. And today we don't have that. We live far away from our families, right? And you see a lot of people moving home after they have kids to be you know, near their families. I mean, I, I lost my whole family, so I don't have a family. I have wonderful in-laws, but they live far away. And so you know, what do you do? And for most, the workplace is such a big village. I mean, for everybody, you know, identity wise, you spend all this time there more than at home. And so they're the village. And so employers really need to know that, that they've got to pick up that slack. And that is no easy feat. So I would, you know, say that, you know, there's so many reasons why, you know, what I'm going to tell you about, you know, things that you need to, you know, that you should consider doing, easy ways to do it, you know, more of an investment. I think it's all really important, but I, I think if 
employers understand that they are that village and that they need to do more because the U.S. is terrible. I'm not, you know, that's, I'll just say that. I don't think we need a thousand statistics to tell us that. I mean, we have the leave issue. We've got these really high expectations, social media, Instagram, people looking like they're doing it all. It's unrealistic. Um, I read this article about the relentlessness of modern parenting and the quote that I felt rang true was, you know, you are feeling that the expectation is, you know, on parents, especially women, that you should return to work as if you do not have children and raise your children as if you don't have a job. And I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Um, And so, you know, you have employers having to pick up the leave. You have to pick up the ex, you know, I got to figure out how to support people through navigating this unrealistic expectations, which does relate to your career. And a lot of your time you spend at work and uh, God, daycare. (laughs) Don't even get me started about that. But there's scarce, affordable daycare, which is a huge stressor of people coming back to work and being able to come back to work within three months of having a child, for example. I mean, I know this sounds crazy, but it's a very real thing, especially where we live, um, to have to get on a waiting list for daycare like three to five years in advance, especially for some people that work for federal agencies that provide affordable daycare. It's such a big demand and there's long waiting lists and it's more than a mortgage. I mean, you're spending, you know, at the low end, you know, 2,800 bucks for two kids a month at the high end, 4,200. I mean, that's a more than a mortgage and a tough thing to put on parents. I mean, they're choosing to have kids, but is that, how is that, how is that even realistic to even make someone choose to go back to work? Um, even if it's not financially viable or to work when it's not viable for their family um, dynamics. I think that's another thing that the U S has that in terms of, you know, what employers can do is something that they need to consider. And I'll move on to strategies now because I don't want to, you know, beat a dead horse. But, you know, in thinking about what employers can do, I, I, I look at, you know, paid leave, you know, or longer leave. I look at how can you help people reintegrate to work, just like onboarding or one would have for like a relocation or reintegration program to the U.S. if you are overseas for years, Um in that way, how can you help them with balancing daycare? You know, you're not, you don't have as many stay-at-home moms. You got to pick up kids at 245. (laughs) You have to drop them off at preschool. And when, you know, how do you work nine to five and do that? I mean, you simply cannot, it's not realistic. Um, For many, it's not affordable. So, you know, what can employers do there? And I know you wanted me to talk about kind of FMP. Do you want me to move on to that? Yeah. I mean, I think that everything that you shared is really important because employers uh, clearly can do things within their own walls. They also have some sway politically as well for very, very large companies that they could, you know, as a company advocate for or try to speak out about uh, the need for better national policies. So I think that there's advocacy piece. There's also a piece of, you know, creating that village, like you mentioned. Um, So, yeah. So um, in your in your specific role, what have you done to make this easier for employees at FMP um, or even easier for employees at FMP. And then for people who are listening, who are employees within all kinds of organizations, based on the research that you've done and kind of the work that you've been completing in this area, how can people apply as individuals and organizations, maybe they're not decision makers, um, what you've learned so far uh, in your journey and what advice would you give people who are listening? Absolutely. So as you mentioned before, I did come into an incredibly supportive family funding work environment. Um, that's, you know, small woman owned business where everybody, you know, who's in a leader, uh, has family and some cases, small kids. And so we have kind of this built in culture and values of autonomy and flexibility, which is an area, huge area where employers can support, um, new parents, but that's really built in. And I think a lot of organizations try to, um, espouse, you know, their values, um, they've got to walk that walk that talk. I mean, it, it, it is a little bit of a top down thing. And so my experience is, you know, in message for leaders is that you have to pay attention to this and really look at, you know, what is your culture? Are you saying that you're flexible and you're not, you know, what, what, what's really happening? Um, so at FMP, I think, you know, they've already focused on that. 
So I came into that. I think a piece on benefits, especially regarding paid leave and things like supporting parents in um, managing their care for their children, especially when, you know, something comes up last minute, (laughs) you got to go to the meeting and your child is in the ER or, you know, in my case, I mean, my child stopped breathing the minute I was supposed to present at a staff meeting and ended up in the ER. I mean, oh my gosh, talk about stress. Um, But we do regularly survey our workforce um, on benefits and other things. You know, we look at engagement, but specifically in the area of benefits. Um, And, you know, we're always reevaluating how we can kind of move around the finances to offer more. So I think that's something I would say that's, I don't know if a lot of organizations really do those type of surveys and really delve into that level of detail in terms of um, seeing, you know, what are, what employees want? I don't know if every organization they want that. I mean, we have a pretty young workforce, um, but I think that's something you need to evaluate and look at you know, can you do more? And if you can't do more with your current situation, well, could you move things around? You know, ask people. I think overwhelmingly, you're going to find that people want more leave, parental leave. Um, And so, you know, we're always evaluating that. Um, The other thing is, you know, I co-chair a work-life effectiveness committee, which is kind of our wellness wheelhouse that we've had for years. Um, And When you look at wellness, I think, you know, the general wellness wheel as, you know, our health insurance company, Cigna, thinks about it as nutrition, fitness, financial wellness, you know, some social wellness, but there's not a lot in the area of um, parental or family wellness. And so we've looked at that. And in my role, I've partnered with my co-chair to think about what can we do? You know, we've had informal new parents groups come together. I think that's kind of a grassroots effort that, you know, you could encourage from, you know, managers having check-ins with their employees or pairing people with mentors or saying, you know, hey, it might be a good idea to talk to this person who just came back from leave and it, you know, to encourage and open that up. Um, But we were also looking at, which is really simple to, you know, what are some resources that we could put together Um, or could we provide, like we would provide career coaching, some you know, integration coaching for new parents, you know, we could easily say here, compile our resources. There's tons of webinars that are free about how to prepare to return to work, you know, how to pump, which is a huge thing for moms. How do you pump milk when you do it? You know, we provide a wellness room for that, but you know, how do they get in there and what do they need? And can we provide you know, hospital grade pump or, you know, simply storage or a space for them to, work while they're pumping. I mean, you could quite honestly spend three hours a day expressing breast milk and it's a huge interruption to productivity. And believe me, moms don't want to be sitting there eating bonbons and looking at Instagram. They want to be productive. <laughs> quite, you know, I had a friend I was talking to earlier and she kind of spearheaded this, um, they have floor to ceiling windows like we do in the office, um, spearheaded this effort to um, get this dedicated room for um you know, breast milk and have workstations, you know, where they have the workstations and they have the phone, they could be on conference calls and moms can get together and complain and give advice, right? Commiserate. Um, And so, you know, what can you do there? You know, what can you provide? I mean, gosh, you know, this is legal to provide this space. And I hear about women pumping in bathrooms and pumping in closets. And that is, not only illegal, but how is that productive for anybody, for the organization, for the mom? So I think, you know, that's some of the stuff we are really working on at FMP is bringing together those resources and potentially providing some more coaching support, bridging that gap um, of not having that village, you know, connecting new parents. That's huge. You know, I did a group called PACE that got together 12 new parents and, you know, it was facilitated sorry, by a social worker that kind of went through all of the different challenges and provided strategies. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of the examples that you're giving here are reasonably affordable. So maybe you can't afford to have, you know, eight months of paid paternal leave or um, in the parental leave in the organization, but you can probably 
change a conference room into a wellness room and have a place for mothers. Um, so there's a lot of like little mm-hmm. things that you mentioned here that I think are really great um, that organizations could easily implement with, if they wanted to. All you have to do is have the desire to make that impact. And I think that you can easily make some of these little small changes that will make the workforce um, feel more supported and hopefully create a culture where people are supporting each other when they're going through um, these transitions. So I really like all those examples. And absolutely. I think, you know, one thing I've really been thinking about is don't forget about the fathers because I think they're forgotten, like we talked about, Um, you know, and I think also don't forget about Mm -hmm. the impact that managers make. You know, we've done, this started before my time, so I cannot claim that I've made this change, but we have done some training for managers on compassionate boundaries. And, you know, how do you recognize when someone's struggling? You know, you don't cross that line into, you know, getting into their life, but, you know, there's benefits such as employee assistance programs um, that are not heavily promoted that provide parental transition resources and counseling and even related to dealing with teenagers <laughs> and, you know, pumping and dealing with marital problems that can arise from, um, you know, having a child. I mean, all of that, I really try to promote that. I've done a lot more of that. You know, you we have short-term disability, which people don't realize. I mean, that's only for moms because, like I said, you're disabled for six to eight weeks. So we try to work our program around the PTO so we're not you know, we're giving people the maximum we can of paid time off plus short-term disability and then trying to figure out how can we give that to fathers so it's not inequitable. I mean, we give the same amount of leave to fathers, obviously, and more than the federal, but what else can we do for fathers? And I've really been thinking about that. I haven't come up with the, you know, plan that I would want, um, but I, you know, I think that's really important to think about that. Yeah. So we, we, so appreciate the tips that you've shared because you have so much experience both personally, professionally, and in the research that you've done. Um, is there anything else that you, uh, would like to share with our listeners before we, uh, have a, just a little fun question for you? Yes. I wanted to go into some things, not new things that I've done, but really simple things that organizations can do. Like we talked about since we're not all Facebook or Google, Um, And so the number one thing um, that I want to tell organizations is flexibility and autonomy is huge. So, for example, providing um, flexible work hours, you know, not a rigid nine to five, providing some options to help people slowly transition back. So, you know, we have people maybe come back at halftime, then increase to 32 hours, or maybe they want to maintain, they want to dial it back and maintain a part time schedule. I mean, this is very realistic. I'm in a job share. I don't know how many, you know, I don't hear of anyone else doing that. That's another piece of flexibility. Um, People talk about this dial, you know, what do you want to dial up? What do you want to dial back? And giving people an opportunity to dial back so they can be more productive and spend time with their kids. I mean, we have such flexible hours. You know, I'm able to drop my kids off at daycare. I'm able to go to their karate lesson (laughs) or watch them do something in school, parent-teacher conference. I mean, it's so, you know, it's about, allowing people to be adults and saying, Hey, do your work, but you know, do it how you want because, you know, be productive, but take care of your kids when you want to take care of your kids. So that's a big thing. As I mentioned, training managers, I think one of the big things is managers are uncomfortable with broaching the subject. I think, you know, you can train managers to how to have check-ins with employees to, pay more attention when they're transitioning back to work. You know, they may not know what to say, but they can direct them to further support, direct them to HR, direct them to the employee assistance program. You know, nobody talks about these free resources that are available. So I think, you know, doing some training, even if it's not super formal, but just educating them on how to do that. Um, So that's, that's a piece. I've already talked about kind of the benefit side of the house. I think one thing you know, beyond promoting employee assistance programs or looking at what your short-term disability provides and what you can do more of is my husband has what they call backup care, which is awesome, Um, which is like up to five times a year um, for each child, you can get backup care. So when you have an emergency where your child's sick or, you know, your nanny cancels or your daycare is closed, that you can have a vetted or register, you know, vetted nanny, vetted registered nurse come to your house 
for 10 bucks, or you can pay your provider, you can pay a babysitter back. So you're not in a financial hole. So I think that's, it's not very expensive and it comes with employee assistance programs. I definitely think it's something to look into. Um, I already talked about pumping and breast milk, so we won't talk about that. But as I mentioned, I think that's a really easy way um, to support moms coming back to the workforce and support breastfeeding that can be very beneficial from the medical sense to um, babies. So, um, and then, you know, as I mentioned, wellness programs are looking at, you know, financial and nutrition and other resources. So I think encouraging more of that parental support where your program does address that either through education or, um, you know, group coaching, it doesn't have to be super formal, but even just having that resource available and connecting people with other new parents, um, you know, letting them know that, hey, it's a huge help to have that uh, group there, informal, you know, mentor, peer mentoring, you know, professional support, that kind of thing. Um, And so I think that it's a huge thing. Some organizations have more formal, some organizations encourage these kind of employee resource groups or, you know, may even provide some resources for them, like a lunch or, you know, conference room for them to meet quarterly, things like that, so they can organically develop those relationships. Um, You know, there's, I don't necessarily need to talk about the big guys, but I think some of the, you know, cool things I've seen is providing some more paid time off that's just for medical recovery, Um, really extending that to adoptive, foster, LGBT community, that kind of thing to be inclusive. Um, You know, sometimes people provide, you know, subsidies for childcare or kind of baby cash, to help people um, bankroll this incredibly expensive um, leave. I mean, and, you know, gosh, General Mills, you know, they don't, they let people have flexible, you know, remote work arrangements. I mean, look, I have syrup in my hair right now and eight loads of <laughs> unfolded laundry and my kitchen looks like a bomb went off. And, you know, I'm able to <laughs> sort that out because I work a really flexible schedule and I work a short schedule on Wednesday. So I have my afternoon to do that stuff and I don't have to make a lunch or get in work clothes. You know, when I pull up to preschool and my child vomits on me, I mean, that's like, it sounds stupid, but it, it goes a really long way. So I think that, that that's what I say just to plug that one more time is the flexibility is kind of the number one thing. So if you're doing nothing, really start there and then think about some of these other things you can do, which are again, very low cost. And then if you're a bigger organization, you know, step it up. Seriously, I'm going to say that. Like, you have a major obligation. You have the money. You know, you need to do it. Agreed. I second that. Any big company that's not doing it definitely needs to step up. And smaller companies that want to do it, I think there's a lot they can learn from everything you've just said and trying to do it in an affordable way as much as they can to try to help their employees. And that flexibility is a great place to start. And I think, um, We've already plugged FMP quite a bit and how amazing it is. Um, So we won't spend a ton of time there, but we do want to do that final fun question. Um, So this is just about your parenting in terms of how you want to spend your time with your children. And of course, I think most people would say they want to spend as much time with their children as they can. It's the nice answer. But if you had to pick only one way to do it, what would you choose? So meals, bedtime, playing, what would the one thing be? that you would want to do the most? Oh my gosh, if I could get out of bedtime, I would. Dinner and bedtime <laughs> are the worst times of the day, especially with, you know, you little kids. So, you know, and they kind of behave, they let it loose on you and their worst behavior, which is totally normal developmentally. But for me, getting them out of the house and getting them on new adventures is what I want to be doing. And especially things like the beach, you know, exploring water and the sand. I mean, it's, something I enjoy personally, but gosh, I love when we can go to the beach. Um, We do it at least once a year, but I'm already planning this summer to take, you know, some day trips as much as we can, or maybe just one night away, Um, or even, you know, hiking, just new experiences outdoors is, you know, even the pool. Uh, They have spray grounds and water plays. So that's my favorite thing to do. Definitely kind of a dual parent. (laughs) Um, requirement for supervising them. But, um, you know, I will sacrifice and do it myself just so I can have that experience with them. Oh, that's a good answer. (laughs) That's awesome. Bedtime. Yeah. I do not have children, but I have uh, nannied 
uh, for extended periods of time and bedtime was never the time that was most fun. (laughs) Um, It's like a two hour, three hour process. I mean, I love them so much and I love the cuddling, but the last thing that you want to do when you have to clean the house or make food is is to spend those three hours doing bedtime and then be exhausted and have no time for yourself. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this information. And we really respect and honor um, the, uh, the willingness that you have to speak about these difficult issues. I'm sure that our listeners will feel the same way. So thank you so much for sharing all this. I learned a lot. I'm sure everyone else will too. And we just really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Well, thank you for creating this forum to share. And I hope um, these tips are useful. And I know the background's kind of long, but I think understanding the why, um, why employers need to do it and why it's so important hopefully will help to create that business case for leadership to be able to make those investments we agree thank you so much again maggie i'm so happy that you're able to join us um it's always great talking to you and yeah thanks again absolutely thanks thanks patricia and katina um i look forward to continuing to connect and listen to your podcasts thanks bye Thank you so much for Maggie for joining us today and talking about her experience with postpartum rage and um, motherhood in the workplace. I think we've learned a lot, um, a lot, a lot, a lot, honestly. So if you, we'd love to hear from you now. We'd love to hear your stories. If you want to share um, your experience or any other advice you have for people, please reach out. You can find us at workerbeing.com. You can email us at workerbeing at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media at workerbeing on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. The Worker Being Podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabarek and Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson. Oh.